Awesome. Thanks, guys. So it's so good to be with you and um, Kristen and I. Um, it's a real honor and a real privilege to be in your church family, get to know you. We've heard a lot about you for the last three years. And um, we've known Russ and Mary for probably 26, 27 years. And um, that, yeah. That's right, not that old. And we've seen their kids grow up. And, and um, we, Christina and I have four boys, as Russ said earlier, and um, a little girl. And we're, we're so excited what God is going to do. Um, you know, God's been speaking to, I believe, the church worldwide, globally. I really believe he's putting his emphasis on his word and the blueprint, you know, even this big shaking that's taken place with coronavirus is definitely a shaking. The Bible does say in the last days he will shake heaven and the earth. And basically whatever's not built on the kingdom will fall apart. But if you're built on the kingdom, you you've you got nowhere to when you're on the rock, you've got nowhere to shake to. Because you've established yourself on the rock of Jesus. So the house won't crumble, Jesus said. When you, do, when you hear his word and do it, you're building your house on the rock. And so there is a, a shaking in the nations. It's not just within Australia. I mean, what we've just experienced last year is a massive shake. And then some people said, what is God going to do in the church? Oh, God's doing a new thing and there's a new thing. We're not going to go back to the old and all this sort of stuff. Well, what I believe God's doing, yes, it's going to be a new thing. But it's, the new thing is always the, the very thing he wrote about in the New Testament. It's actually not new. It's just we weren't biblical. We weren't true to the word. We weren't true to the book of Acts. We weren't true to what the Bible says. And we had so many things that we put in to church life that God didn't put in. And so when we're talking about going back to the, a new thing, God's doing a new thing, I had one lady, very prophetic voice and very well known in Australia, just saying God's gonna, it's not going to be hierarchy and it's going to be the priesthood of all believers and, and no, nameless and faceless generation doing the works of Jesus and miracles. Well, that's in the Bible. That's exactly what the New Testament talks about. It talks about that we're all priests. We're, we're, we're equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what the Bible says. So I really believe that with all my heart. And, and so what the Lord is doing is bringing a great reset for us to come back to Jesus. You know, we've been privileged to be in partnership with the NCMI team as a church for close to 27 years as well. And so, um, you know, Tyron, who leads it, has been speaking on Christ, that everything's about Christ and get back to the Christology of Christ and everything should be about Him and He's the head and Christ is before all things. And and it's taken me a long time because it's probably about six or seven years it finally started to drop. And I thought I should study the Word for myself. I should look at the Bible because, again, that's the blueprint. And I look into the New Testament and look up the words Jesus, look up the word Christ and look what it says about Him. And I realize everything is about Him. And sometimes we get sort of slowly distracted, slowly led astray, and our emphasis becomes everything but Him. Talking about the church, sometimes we, we, you know what I mean? Like, anyway, I don't want to get into that because I want to dive into something deeper this morning. I want to try to get in, but we want everything to be about Him. Whenever we preach a particular message that might give you life skills, it's still about Him. Marriage is still about Him. He gave us the model of marriage. Christ loved the church. Yes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, loved the bride, and gave himself up for her. So the, he modeled how we should love our wife. The way we raise our children, it's admonition of the Lord. So we take his, take his teaching and we raise our children. Everything we teach should be connected to Jesus and love for him. 
and we do it because of Him, right? And so I just want to show us something quickly in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was a great master builder, a great apostle, and he knew what to do and how to build. And he was very concerned that the church was getting led astray from their simple devotion to Jesus. And he says it in verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you or I engaged you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He's basically saying everything that I do was to present you to Christ as a pure virgin. So when you marry someone, you obviously want them to be purely devoted to you. You don't want their hearts to be given to all these other men. True? That's disgusting, isn't it? Imagine if they, this, this woman that's going to marry you is going to devote her life to you for the rest of her life, but she goes, oh, but I sleep around with other men anytime I want to. That'd be disgusting. And yet, that's what the picture here is saying, that I want to present the bride, which is you and I, the church, to Christ as a pure virgin, devoted only to Jesus. Not in love with the world, not in love with other idols and other gods and everything else takes its affection and attention. And we, we, we you know what I mean, our affection, our love, we, we love everything else but Jesus. And Jesus is saying, through Paul, Paul is saying, but I'm afraid that as the serpent, no, sorry, verse Two, let's go back to that. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so, it, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as a servant deceived Eve by his craftiness or by his deception, he deceived her, your mind would be led astray or distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Yes, yes I'm concerned that just the way Satan deceived Eve, and the, the, when you look into the real depth of how did Satan deceive you know, Eve, it was because he questioned the integrity of God. He made God look like he doesn't want the best for you. It made it look like the sin of eating of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was better than what God had for her. God said you can eat freely from all the trees in the garden. There's so many trees you can enjoy so much things you can do in my will to enjoy. But this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's only one tree, which more likely represented that. To me, I, I believe that also represents symbolically the, the freedom to do your own thing. The only thing I don't want you to do is to, say, to, to no longer follow me and no longer be in love with, with you and follow Jesus and follow God and do my own thing. Because in the act of disobedience, they said, no, we'll do our own, our own thing. And so Satan goes, did God really say? Did he really say? Maybe God is basically saying, no, but if you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll know between good and evil. In other words, God has not really got your best interests at heart. He's not speaking to you with the benefit of what's going to bless you. I've got a better plan for you. So what looked good to their eye, what looked good to taste, and what looked good for the pride of life, they go, you know what, I'll eat this. And they were deceived, thinking... God didn't want the best for them. I believe sinful nature, the sin of this world and the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, it's, a, it's, it's sin. It's a bait that looks like it'll, it'll give us a better life than God. It's a lie. It's absolute deception. And so the sin is like, you know, the fish in the water, sees the prawn, and the fish is, ooh, yummy, 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 prawn. And then gets a hook behind it and doesn't realize there's a person up there fishing. It looks good, it's going to taste good, and you bite it, and it's your doom. Sin's like that. It looks good, when we bite, there's always a deadly hook behind it, and it's for your doom. That's, that's having your eyes open to what sin does. 
Now, when you realize God wants the best for you, when you see how beautiful God is, you see how beautiful Jesus is, how magnificent, how loving, it's like giving up sin and the flesh and the world and all this affection of the world, love and attention. It's not a hard thing to give that up when you see how beautiful he is. We call it a sacrifice. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. It's only because we don't see how good he is. When you see how beautiful he is, that's having our eyes open. Remember that Paul says, I'm afraid that a serpent deceived Eve. You might also be led astray. So a person that's deceived doesn't know they're deceived. If you think, no, hang on, I think I'm deceived, then all of a sudden you're not deceived. A person that's deceived doesn't understand that he's deceived. The moment you don't, the moment that you see that I'm not deceived, you're no longer deceived. So don't sit there and be too confident that well, that's not me, I'm definitely not deceived. If we are living for the world, we're actually deceived. Absolutely deceived. If we're not living completely fully in love for Jesus and, and want to be obedient to him out of love, that's when you're not deceived. When we're listening to him and following him completely. Yeah. Does that make sense? And really, a mature believer is some, someone who's done with sin. I really believe that. That we're dead to sin because he's so good. He's so magnificent. He's so beautiful. So you might mess up in that, but you, you give up. You, you ask God to forgive you and you get up and you follow him as if you never sinned because of the blood of Jesus. And so, if you turn to First John, chapter three, we just want to see Jesus. Okay, this morning, we want to see him as he really is. He's beautiful. Psalms is a beautiful scripture. I love it. it says, uh, "Worship him in the beauty of his holiness." His holiness is beautiful. His holiness means he is set apart. He's set apart. He's so beautiful. He's so magnificent. He's glorious. When John saw the one sitting on the throne, it was like an emerald. It was like a jewel shining in all its brilliance. He's trying to explain what the Father looked like. And rainbows of all colours were emanating out of him. Thunders and lightning and rollings of thunders. I mean, God is beautiful. And He's light. And in Him there's no darkness at all. Not an ounce of darkness. Just light. Pure light. When I think of light, I think of love. No selfishness at all. Joy, no depression at all. Faith, no fear at all. Peace, no despair, no anxiety in the heart of God. Nothing in who He is. He's pure, He's beautiful, He's loving. He's full of love, but He's also full of justice and righteousness and judgments. He's full of mercy, but He also is a God of justice. All at the same time. And that's why He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So that our sins could be dealt with. And so we find... The plan of God, the only reason why he created mankind is because he's in love and he wanted his, his love and he wants to love. And he made us in his image and his likeness. He made children like us. And what does it say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2? Beloved, now we are children of God. That's one of the greatest revelations we all could actually get. When you really believe that, it changes your life. Now we are children of God. Not one day when I get to heaven, one day when I finally get before Jesus, and then I'm a child of God. No, you are a child of God now. You're born of His Spirit. You're born of His Word. Your dead spirit that was dead because of our separation from God because of Adam and Eve. My spirit was dead. Your spirit was dead. But that old man died. And we were dead in our sins, but He made us alive in Christ. What part of us came alive? Our spirit came alive. We got resurrected, I believe. We're seated in heavenly places with Him. I'm no longer dead to my sin in my spirit. 
I'm alive to God. I'm dead with my sin. I am dead to sin, but I'm not dead with sin in my spirit. I'm alive to God. You're alive to God. And so, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. This blows my mind out of the water. I don't know what it does for you. We will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So we're not going to see Him as He was, walking in the streets of Galilee, the humble servant, the suffering servant. We, we, you know, we don't yet know what we, what it has not appeared yet as yet what we will be. We don't know what we're going to look like for sure. But we know, this is what he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. Well, how is Jesus right now? The word of God tells us, we're going to look at it in a second. He's full of glory. Full of splendor. Full of holiness. Full of glory. And we're going to see him as he is, for we shall be like him. You and I are going to be transformed. The Philippians says that, we will, uh, that the Lord God will uh, transform our lowly bodies so that it may be conformed into his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, about the, um, you know, going into the seed and, and we, 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 the resurrected body we put off and we get a glorified body. We're going to be glorified like Jesus. It's like, wow, Lord, it's almost too, too good to be true. It's, it's, it's all... But I believe the Bible. I believe what the Bible says about us. And it's when you believe you're, you're getting purified. Doesn't 2 Corinthians talk about looking into the glory of the Lord? And, and we are transformed as we look into the glory of the Lord. And so as we get revelation, we are transformed into the revelation that we get of Him. We become like Him. Little by little. Glory to glory. And we are renewed in our thinking by revelation knowledge. Our spirit has God living in, in, him, in here. God is living in you, but our mind needs to be renewed. And that's what we're working on all the time, isn't it? Renewing our thinking, renewing our thoughts. The whole gospel, which is what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus came and he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. The whole gospel was to do this, to make God's home in you. The spirit of the living God is now allowed to live in you. It's because the temple was cleansed. The physical body is the temple. And Paul goes, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. God himself lives in you. When the church of Jesus rises up and believes that we have God living in us, it's not our strength that we heal the sick. It's not our ability. It's him in us. He does it. It's not us. It says, and everyone who has this hope Fixed on him. When you have the hope that we'll be like him, that one day when we see him, we shall see him as he is, for we will be like him. When you have this hope fixed in him, purifies himself. It's the hope that you will be like Jesus and you're going to be close to him and you're going to be one with him. It's a love relationship with him. When you've got this love relationship fixed on Jesus, that's what purifies you. It says, because of this, he purifies himself just as he is pure. Because Jesus is pure I, and I'm going to be like him and, I want to, and I'm drawing close to him and I'm, I'm, I'm fellowshipping with him and connecting with him, it's all about relationship. Relationship is what motivates me to not want to sin. Why do I want to purify myself? I don't want to sin because it hinders the heart of Jesus. It hurts him. It grieves him and it also hinders our relationship, our love relationship. That's the most powerful revelation why you and I will want to stop sinning and die to the flesh, subdue the flesh. 
There's many reasons why we can be disciplined and pay a price, even as a pastor and a, a believer or a businessman or, or whatever you do, whatever position you have in the marketplace, you might go, I'm going to spend time with God and I want to pray and I want to fast because I want to be a successful person. I want to be able to be powerful and get ideas and be creative and get wisdom and you know, make money for the kingdom. There's all these men, it's good things. God created us to want these things. As a pastor, you can say, I'm going to pay a price. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I want to be anointed. I want to heal the sick. I want to see the church grow. Who doesn't? So I might do that for that reason. But if I'm not doing it for Jesus, eventually, if I pay a price because I want to be successful, because I want to be, um, what's the word, um, please my peers, because I want to be known. I want the church to grow. Everyone wants to succeed. No one wants to fail. You don't get up in the morning and go, I want to fail today. I want to do miserable. I don't want to win. I want to make mistakes. No, we want to be winners. We want to be victorious. We are called by Jesus to rule and reign with him. It's the way you were created. No one wakes up and says, I want to fail. I even want to be depressed today. No, no, we want to succeed, do well, prosper, and be, be blessed. Absolutely. God gave us those desires. I believe it's a godly desire. But if I pursue, if I pursue a sort of putting down the flesh and disciplining myself because I only want that and not him, in the long run, it won't hold water. In the long run, I believe when you get what you think success is, the motivator is no longer there. If you succeed, let's say it was millions of dollars and now I'm a multimillionaire, then whatever motivated you to get there is no longer motivating you. If you succeed and have thousands of people in your church and you think now I'm successful, whatever you thought was success, because that's not it, that's wrong. But if you were motivated that way, then you're no longer motivated. But the purity of the Scriptures talks about we, we, we put down sin, all those things, because of our love for Him. And why do I love Him? It's because He first loved me. The love I have is not my love. It's His love. The love you have for Him, it's His love that He loved you on. You've received that love, and with that love, I love Him because He first loved me. That's why we realize it's all Him. All of it. And so let's have a look at Revelations chapter 1. John was a pure man, holy man, probably one of the holiest people on the planet back then. He was the closest to Jesus when he walked with Jesus. He even said it himself, the one that Jesus loved. He leaned on the bosom of Jesus on his chest. And Jesus didn't tell him who was going to betray him. But when Peter says, John, ask him, because he's so close to his chest. Could he hear even the heartbeat? He's leaning his head. I mean, that's intimacy, isn't it? Jesus loving us and allowing a bloke, an Aussie bloke, me and us blokes, and, you know, and, there was, and it's just so close, intimate love that he has for John and John for Jesus. And, and Jesus says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, the one I put the, you know, the dip my bread in and feed, that's the one who betrays me. He gave it. He gave the secret to him. Intimacy, closeness. John was holy and then... He goes to Island of Patmos, basically persecuted for the word's sake. They tried to kill him. Tradition says, and historians say that they tried to boil him in water, in oil, and couldn't die. He didn't die. And so they got rid of him, put him into the island of Patmos. And in verse 9, we pick it up. I, John, your brother, a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Pat, uh, called Patmos because of the word of God. In other words, I sent him there because of the word of God for persecution. And the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I love the fact that the enemy couldn't hold back God and, and, what the, and the preaching of the word. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And behold, 
I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon and to Theatria and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are seven churches that were there when John was alive. And he was to write a letter to them, right? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He looked around, seven golden lampstands. And the Bible says the seven golden lampstands is the church, were the seven churches that he was to write to. And, amidst the, says, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was with a golden sash. So he sees Jesus and he tries to describe what, how he sees him. This is how Jesus is now. And he goes, he's, he had a, a robe all the way down and a golden sash across here of gold. I believe it's real gold, personally. And he goes, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow even. Like in other words, it's glistering. You know, when the sun hits the snow, it's glistering. He's glowing. His, his hair is glowing with his glory. And he goes, and, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Flame of fire, pure love, like eternity looking into you. Fire speaks of purity and burning everything that's not of God out of us. But he looks right through you with love, with knowing everything about you. He still loves you with that pure, passionate love. That's the picture that, we, that, that that's telling us. He loves you with his passion. His feet were like bur bur burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Now, I've never seen burnished bronze coming out of a furnace, but obviously it must be glowing. And, he, and he's trying to say, Jesus is glowing with the presence and glory. And he goes, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Niagara Falls, you hear it. That's his voice. The majesticness of his voice. This is God in the flesh. And it says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. That's the, the, the pastors of those seven churches. He actually tells us later. I'm not guessing this. It's in the Bible. Okay, You can look it up as well. You can read it. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I love that. Out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. It's power. Can I tell you how powerful the sword is? In the book of Revelations later on, when he comes on the horse and he comes to judge the Armageddon war and the valley of um, the decisions from Ezekiel. And, and he basically says, and he, he stops the war with the sword of his mouth. Just with a word. It's how powerful Jesus. He stops the whole nations fighting all the nations with one word. That's how powerful it is. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. A dead man. This is John, a holy man, pure man, loves Jesus. And he fell. And, and look at this. In his right hand was the seven stars. Out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, is the one I to get to, was like the sun shining in all its strength. He's trying to explain what he's seeing in Jesus. And his face was shining brighter than the sun in the noonday. You try to look at the sun for a few seconds even. Your, your eyes go crazy. You, you can't look at the sun. It's too bright. But Jesus' face shines brighter than the sun. If Jesus walked in in all of his glory right here into this room, we'd all fall down and overwhelmed with his love. And we'd honor him like the king of all kings. 
You know, there's, there's some scriptures. I just want to show you something. There's some scriptures in Isaiah 13, verse 9 to 10. You can write them down and have a look for yourself. Um, Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and to 31. Joel 30, uh, sorry, Joel 3, verse 15. Matthew 24, 29, 30. Luke 21, 25. And then also Acts 2, 20. I can send these notes to Russ and, and so on. Um, and... Yeah, I'd better do that. It's better. Matthew 24, and, and then it says Acts 2.20. Peter quotes Joel in Acts. I'm showing you that it's written all over the Bible. That's my point with all the telling you how many scriptures. It's all about the same incident. And then Revelation 6.12 talks about it because it's given us the picture of the end of the world or, or, or when the Lord comes back. And a lot of these scriptures are talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord when he returns. And then Matthew 24, it says this. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. You know this scripture. Everyone knows this. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. Other, other versions, when you read other books saying it, the stars will not bear its light. The stars will not shine. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, and here's then, that means when you look up the word, it's like at that time. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And I never understood this. I used to read this. I was, I was, you know, when I first became a Christian, I was an end time person. I wanted to know all about the end of the world. I was reading all the scriptures and the Bible and in Barry Smith days, you know. And, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I remember reading this and thinking, what does that mean? I wouldn't have a clue what it means. I'm thinking, and my brain, I don't know why we do this as fallen humanity, but we see, see everything as an annihilation. We just think everything's going to be destroyed, everything's going to be gone, and the whole world, the whole earth is going to finish. And, and so I thought the sun will be turned, it must, must be going to get destroyed. But if the sun didn't shine because it was destroyed, we'd freeze up and die. So scientifically, it cannot happen. We'd die, right? I never understood it until I saw this. And you look up the words, some translation, especially in the Old Testament, says the panim. Panim is the face of God. Because the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon won't shed its light and the stars won't bear its light because the panim, the face of God. And, and, and a little, imagine a little child daughter with the father lying down on the grass, looking up to the sky I mean, in the, in the night time, the stars. And, this, and this infatuated with the beautiful stars and the daughters who just thought, oh, beautiful, the stars, oh, God's created, he's created so many stars and millions and millions of them. And she's just really in awe of God. And the next morning she gets up and says, Dad, because it's sun, the sun's out, Dad, where did all the stars go? I had such a good time with you last night talking about the stars. Where did all the stars go? And this, the husband says, oh, the stars are still there. The stars haven't moved. It's just that the sun's shining. So you can't see the stars anymore. And I, and I, I got it. I realized the reason why you don't, the sun turns into darkness and the moon won't bear its light is because it gets eclipsed with the glory of Jesus coming back to the earth. The glory of Jesus is going to be so bright. Do you get this? If I had a light bulb here and the room was pitch black and I had a light bulb, it'll shine. But if I had a big giant spotlight and turned it on, you won't see this anymore at all. You only see this. And that's how it turns to darkness. So next time you look at the sun during the day, 
believe the scriptures, because I do, I, I look and I go, God, when you come back to the earth, you're going to shine brighter than that sun right now. I can feel the heat. I can feel, see the light. But you're going to shine brighter. Wow. We're going to, we, 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 I don't know, little by little, we're learning to see how glorious he is. This is the one that spoke the universe into existence with his words. So Jesus reveals himself to John and he says, write to the seven churches. And to the seven churches, he actually says, um, when he always reveals himself with revelation to, to John. He says, to Ephesus, say this. And so let's have a quick look at that. Revelations chapter 2. To the angel, the word angel means messenger. Okay, So it's like, to the messenger... Of the church in Ephesus, right? So John's not going to, he's getting this vision from an angel, and Jesus has come to him in this particular time. He's not going to say, write to an angel, a real angel. He's actually saying, write to a messenger of Ephesus, which is the pastor of Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, say this the revelation that Jesus gives of himself to that particular church is the revelation they actually need of him. Every time he starts with a revelation, to the one with the fiery eyes, that, that particular church needed holiness because they were falling into sexual sin. He always reveals himself. It says, he who has the sword, uh, you know, double-edged sword, it's because that church needed the word. He always revealed himself in the, in the revelation that they needed. right? And so he's showing them intimacy. The seven stars, the one who holds the seven stars is in right hand. The messengers, the pastors, right in my right hand. And the one who walks among the seven golden lamps, that's intimacy, that's closeness. They needed intimacy, they needed closeness. And so he starts to commend them and say, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Ephesus was a powerful church. The, book of, the letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus was one of the most powerful letters ever written by Paul. Didn't have much correction at all, I don't think. But it was a really powerful, and you look at the history and the, and the way Ephesus was birthed, there's massive revival in, in Ephesians. Massive. It's probably a powerful, strong church. And there's a lot of things going for them. And the Lord says this. He goes, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know the stuff you do for me. And he's like commending them. You're doing really well. He goes, I know your toil. Toil means hard labor to the point of burning yourself out. He goes, I know that you're doing it. He goes, your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. That means you are fighting for holiness and purity. You can't handle evil men, yeah. right? And it's a good thing, he's saying to them. And he says, and you put to the test those who call themselves to be apostles, and they are not, and found them to be liars. In other words, you test wrong doctrine. You, you fight for right, right doctrine. You stand for what's true and what's right in the doctrine side of things. It's a good thing, right? They had all these things going for them. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake. So you, you persevered, you're working hard, you're endured for my name's sake. You're getting persecuted, you're still holding true to the faith. I mean, this is really good, right? And have not grown weary, he says, but I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. All these amazing things that they're doing well. Church is powerful, strong. You can have a massive church, and yet the Lord says, you're doing this good, this good, this, this amazing stuff. Very, very good to be commended. But you've lost your first love. If you lose your first love, that's the whole heart of the whole issue. It's like the very reason for why he brought us into existence was relationship with him. 
So you can do all the works, all the labor, all the hard work, fighting for the right doctrine and trying to be holy and pure, but you lost your first love. The word first, when we think of first love, I don't know about you, it makes you think about, oh, I remember when I first got saved. Remember, And, and, and there is some truth to that because when we first got saved, a lot of us had some amazing, just complete devotion to him. But my first salvation when it was 30-something years ago, my love for him now is way more mature. I don't want to go back to my first love. I know him way better now than I did then. So it's actually talking about first. The protos means first and foremost in highest priority. You've lost my, my love and you haven't, in the area of you haven't put me as number one. First and foremost in priority. In time, place and priority. And that's how we lose that love, that passion, that desire. Because other things come in. The distraction of other things, the lust of other things came in and choked the word, one of the grounds of the sower sowed the seed. It's the lust of other things. Sometimes other things are just good things, but it takes up all your time, all your energy that you have got no time for him. And anyone can lose that. I've been a Christian for a long time. There's many times I've allowed myself to be dry, allowed myself to be you know, empty, still ministering, still giving, but I'm just not in that sweet place. I'm not full. I'm not intimately in love with him because I'm just working, working, working. And if I don't spend time with him, you know what I'm saying? Even if you love Jesus dearly, you can allow your, the flicker of that flame to go dim. You've got to put the oil in, put the oil in and make sure that lamp, the oil burns, not the wick. The oil of the anointing burns and not the wick is, means you don't burn because when you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you burn out because you're giving and you're not giving out of him. And so, he has repent. Jesus, just think of his love. I want you to see his love and his pursuit for you and for me. Jesus, out of all those seven churches, told five of them to repent. Five of them said repent. The other two he didn't. That's over two-thirds of the church. It's almost like if he came today, would he tell two-thirds of the church, repent and come back to me? And so we don't want to be the ones that have to uh, you know, we've grown cold and we're doing all the work. We, I really believe a Mary that's in love with Jesus, that sits at the feet of Jesus, will always outwork a, a, a Martha out of love. Absolutely for sure. Paul labored more than all of them. And he goes, but by the grace of God in me, I labor more than everyone. Paul the Apostle said that. So love doesn't mean I'm just going to seclude myself and do nothing. And that's it. I'm spending time with Jesus. No, the love of God enables you and empowers you and motivates you to want to serve people. And to want to get close to people, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it says, repent, remember from whence you have fallen. Sometimes you have to remember. You have to think and go, okay, where have I fallen from? What was it like? I don't know about you. When I first became a Christian, I, I still remember the emotion and the excitement. when I'm outside the building and the worship had started and I'm running to the front to worship Jesus. I couldn't wait to go to the front. Never late, always there on time. I can't wait. And, and the reading the Bible, the TV in my home, when I was a young man in the 19, I didn't even turn on the TV. For the first year or two, I just didn't ever turn it on. It just was non-existent because I just devoured the Bible. And so that's the sort of things you've got to say, remember, okay, I was so focused. I was so, just all about you. And, and so Jesus, also to the Laodicean church, the last one, so that's the first church he he corrected. The last church is the Laodicean church, and they were a wealthy church. The ch- Laodicea, the city, became wealthy because of black wool they were selling. 
And they, and they also had um, eye um, solution, like eye medicine. And that's why it says, buy from me. I'll give you real eye salve, salve that will heal your eyes. Because you think you can see, but you're blind. And he, look what he says. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Remember when I was talking about deception? So we could think that I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm rich, I'm wealthy. We're wealthy, we've got everything we need. We're the church in the West, remember, and we do have so many things. When you go to a third world country and, and they come out to, to you know, experience God or come to church or go to a meeting, um, if they don't get healed, they don't go to medicine, they don't go to pharmacies, they, don't, they haven't got money to go to the doctor, they, they just stay in the pain. So they're desperate. You know, just little things like that. So we don't realize how much we rely on our modern world. Because you are, and he says, you, because you say I am rich and they've become wealthy and they have need of nothing. Imagine thinking, I don't need nothing. So if you lost your hunger, you're unconsciously saying, I, I need nothing. And you do not know that you are, this is how Jesus views them. You do not know that you are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You're not even clothed. You're blind. You think you can see, but you can't. Poor, miserable, wretched, pretty powerful words. I want to know the way Jesus views us. And he says, I advise you to buy from me, from Jesus, maybe come to Jesus, gold refined by the fire. Buy, to me, speaks of pay a price. Don't live a comfortable life, a convenient life. Everything's okay. You know, when you first, when you're in love with Jesus, you're always paying a price. You're sacrificing something. You're giving up something. You're, letting, you're putting your flesh down. Why? To seek him. In other words, get back to paying the price. Out of love for him. Amen? And so how do we know? Just I want to talk about really briefly, how do we know if we've lost our first love? The first thing is nobody and no one captivates your heart like Jesus. No, no one and nobody captivates your heart like Jesus. Not even your favorite TV show. You know, TV show. You're so excited. Oh, the favorite TV show's back on. Wow, you know, it's captivating your heart. Nothing captivates your heart like Jesus. And that's true of hobbies. It's true of just sport. It could be, could be friends. It could be going out to dinner. I mean, it could, be, it could be beautiful things. It could be family. God's blessed us with family, but I can't make them my everything. God blessed me with children, but I don't idolize my children and they, they become my everything. When I, when I put him my, my everything, he blesses my heart and I, can enjoy, I enjoy my children way better and love my children way better when I'm full of his love. And so nothing captivates your heart like Jesus. When someone's in love, they're a little bit insane, aren't they? They're a little bit loony when they're in love because they just want to always spend time together. Nothing captivates your heart. I, I was an obsessed man when I wasn't a Christian. Uh, one of the first things I was obsessed with was at football, rugby league. I was a rugby league player. But to be good at rugby league, you had to think it, sleep it, dream it. And I would walk down the street and I was the captain. and So everything was about football. I would sleep and dream up moves. I was playing football in my dreams. Why? Because it was my God. It was everything. Rugby league was my God. And I would, I'd go to school and i think, oh, this guy would be a good recruit. He's a fast runner. I'm going to put him on my team. Like, everything was about it. And that's, that's what happens when you idolize something. And I did that to breakdancing. I left that to break down, and break down became my idol, and I thought it, thought it, sorry, not now, 
I thought it, slept it, dreamt it, you know, break dance, you break because we, we left our jobs and did it full time and all that stuff. So, so if, you know what I'm saying? If it's not that, it's money. If it's not money, it's girls. If it's not that, it's something else. It's always you put something in place of the Lord. And that's what I'm talking about. Nothing captivates your heart. But him, he captivates your heart. You're passionate in love with him. And because you're passionate in love with him, the next thing that happens is time with him is above everything else. You protect your time with him. When you're in love with someone, you want to spend time with them. You don't, uh, oh, I've got to spend time with my wife. Oh. When you love someone, you want to hang out, don't you? Again, when someone's in love, they're a little bit loony. And you know, the, you know what I mean? You, you, ring, you ring and you phone call, you FaceTime, you spend time with them. And you know, when, when we first dated, she was in Melbourne, I'm in Sydney, and I, I, we, she had a $600 bill. I had a $600 bill. Just talking on the phone, landline. Landline. We thought, I can fly there three times. And I can catch the coach. So I started going there, and, and, and I would drive, and I would be happy, joyful to drive 10, 12 hours just to spend time with her. It's a, it's, a, ah, it's spending time, isn't it? It's spending time with the one you love. You make the time. And so make the time. Prioritize time with him because he's the one you love. He loves you so much, he, he, he prioritizes you. Number three is his word to you means more to you than the words of other people. This word is not just a book. This is my connection with Jesus. This is my window to him. This is how I get to know him. I don't read for knowledge's sake. I read to connect with him. I want to hear him. I want to hear his voice. He speaks into my heart. He speaks into my life. He corrects my life. I let him read me. I fellowship with him with the word. So it becomes, this is treasurable. People shed their blood for this, to translate it, to put it in print. People were burnt at the stake. Because of this being in print and that's on our shelf or on our bedside or it's in our home. Don't take it for granted. I thought, if someone said to me, because I was just trying to see how, much, how valuable is this to me. If someone said to me, I'd give you $100 million if you never picked up the Bible ever again in your life. $100, give me $10 billion. I would, it would not even be a temptation. This is too treasurable. This is his words. And so, you know, yet we've got the privilege and, the, and the, the honor to be able to choose to read the word anytime we want to. Let's not take it for granted because it's in our hands. Because we treasure his word to us. When you, when you love with someone, you treasure it. If you, if, you, if you met someone that's so in love with another person, they're about to get married. I'm in love with the man I'm, I'm about to marry. I'm so in love with him. I can't wait to marry him. And you go to their house and you go to their, their, you know, their living area and lounge room and see all these desks and... You all start seeing all these letters. And they're unopened letters. Now, what are these letters? Oh, that's from the one I love. I love him so much. So how come they're not open? Why? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just, and I couldn't be bothered reading it. That wouldn't make sense. What do you mean you wouldn't read the one who loves you, wrote all these love letters to you, and you wouldn't read it? And that's this. This is a love letter. You've got to see it that way. You can't wait to read and hear what he has to say to you. And the last one is... His desire means more to you than your own desire. One of the things Paul the Apostle said to married um, men, and he said, the one who's married cares for the things for his wife, how he can please her. Why did he say that? Because love pleases the other person. It's what love does. So when you're in love with Jesus, you want to please him. That's what I was talking about, the motivation. When you're in love and you're, you're, you're focused and you're, you're, you're passionately, intimately spending time with him, you 
want to please him. I don't want to sin because I don't want to hurt you. I want to please you. Amen? Can we have the musos please come up? So with all these four questions, I, I, I'm asking and praying that you would just judge yourself in a good way. Don't let not an ounce of shame, ounce of condemnation, don't let, because that's, that's not from the Holy Spirit. If you, if you in any way feel guilt or anything, no, that's not from the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves you so much, he woos you to himself. And he loves you so much. So if, if, it, if, if the Holy Spirit convicts you, that's a good thing. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Don't see it as something yuck. It's like, thank you, Lord, for showing me that. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to me. Yes, okay, thank you, and fix it. But thank him for it, that it's, it's drawing you closer to him. So nobody captivates your heart like Jesus. Let me finish with this. Because this is what the pursuit of Jesus. Someone had an encounter with Jesus, and this is what he said. Do you, do you desire good things? Jesus said to this person, do you desire good things? There's no one good like me. Do you desire blessing? Is there more blessing than me? Do you desire power? Who is more powerful than me? Do you desire spiritual heights? Am I not the pinnacle? Do you desire riches? Well, they are all hidden in me. Do you desire wisdom? Who is wiser than I? Do you desire friendship? Who's a friend like me? Do you desire help? Who can help but me? Do you seek joy? Well, I am joy. Do you seek comfort? I am comfort. Do you seek peace? I am the Prince of Peace. Do you seek life? Can another be life to you? Do you seek light? I am the light of the world. Do you desire beauty? Who is more beautiful than me? All these things we actually desire, but all found in Jesus. All found in Him. The Lord is waiting. The world is waiting for a church that's on fire with Jesus. That's in love with Jesus. Just pure love for Jesus. And I believe, I believe with all my heart that the Lord Jesus is going to get a pure bride. He's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. A bride that's in love with Him. A bride that actually cries out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We can't wait to see you. We can't wait to be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for sending your son to redeem us back to yourself, to restore us back to yourself, to reconcile us back to you, to totally, completely wash us, forgive us, make us clean and give us the gift of right standing with you. And we thank you for this. We thank you for your love for us, your pursuit of us. Lord, we acknowledge that we love you because you first loved us. So Lord, we, we repent, Lord. Any areas in our life where we need to repent, we just repent. If it's distraction, if it's things that we got too busy that we haven't been spending time with you, Lord Jesus, we come back to you. We repent, we remember the heights where we fell from, but we run to you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. And anytime we mess up, anytime we might make mistakes or fall, Lord, we, we will confess it to you, but we will run to you. Not run away, but we'll run towards you. We thank you for your presence, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are here. Thank you for your love. Come and melt our hearts with your presence.
And I pray for every single person in this church, Lord, Redemption Hill Church. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will be given to them in the knowledge of Jesus. Open up their eyes to the hope of their calling, to the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints, that Christ Himself would dwell in our hearts by faith. That we'd all be rooted and grounded in the love of God, the Word of God, the faith of God, the mercy, the fear of the Lord, the humility of Jesus, the righteousness, holiness, purity, and even the fear of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Paul, the great master builder, prayed that prayer. You would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Thank you for doing it, Lord. We receive it. So whenever we read the Bible, whenever we spend time with Jesus, we will get a revelation of Jesus. We'll see Jesus in the Scriptures. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for a moment, if you would. As Leo was reading about Laodicea, I just felt the Holy Spirit said, there's some here you think you see, but you're blind. It's not because you actually can't see, but something's gotten in the way. You thought you were looking at Jesus and what you saw was church. You thought you were looking at Jesus and what you saw was religion. You thought you were looking at Jesus and what you saw was prosperity. You thought you were looking at Jesus and what you saw was rules. And you actually were blind to Jesus. And he's wanting to open our eyes to see him. Will you just pray with me? Lord, open my eyes to see Jesus. Open my eyes. Remove the things that have gotten in the way. Remove the things that have hurt. Remove the things that have misrepresented you. We want the purity of seeing Jesus. Open my eyes. Would you stand?